All right. Uh, we are considering the Judeo-Christian battle against secularism. That battle is based on what I call a false dichotomy, which posits a no-God zone and a God zone, the religious in the God zone and everything else in the no-God zone. Uh, and therefore, the secular, which grew in every aspect of this culture, uh, began to cause the religious world to retreat into an ever-increasing secular world and a less sense of God being involved. Resulted in many believers thinking in terms of being saved and unsaved and conforming other than that into the general secular and sacred traditions of the present culture. I notice this when it comes to issues of food. We've been talking about clean and unclean, and particularly food. And uh, one of the things that I notice is that uh, Americans are zealots about different diets. Now, they're zealots about diets to lose weight. They're zealots about diets for what should be appropriate and not appropriate food for health. They are zealots for... uh, you know, uh, issues of animal cruelty and, and all of those things, but not from a religious perspective, from a health and cultural perspective. I believe that as believers, our focus, which is all of those things, health and diet and appropriateness and uh, cruelty to animals and all that are encompassed in this, but it's greater than that. And therefore, I think we need to keep that in mind. So last week, I... Uh, talked about the idea of clean and unclean in relationship to food. I said that clean refers to a person, animal, condition, or status which is acceptable and without contamination, spiritual or physical, which then may be used for a holy or common use. Uh, The Hebrew word tahor uh, means bright or pure. That's where we get the word clean. The Greek word is Katharos, katharos actually, uh, which means clean or pure. And these are the words that are used in the scriptures. Something that is clean is not clean as we think of versus dirty, but acceptable and appropriate. Um, We talked about that being primarily appropriate uh, for sacrifice, which would include the eating of those sacrifices. Uh, And then, of course, dietary in, in the... Uh, sense of what Leviticus talks about. Unclean refers to a physical substance or a condition, situation, or behavior that pollutes or defiles either at the physical realm or at the spiritual realm, more commonly the spiritual realm. Uh, And therefore, that thing that is unclean must be separated from other things and it should be avoided. The condition of being unclean can be accidental or intentional It exists for various times, uh, many cases until sundown or for seven days in in some cases. Uh, And it really shows up in the New Testament in the concept of unclean spirits. I'm going to talk about that next time, which will be probably in two weeks, since Stuart's going to be with us next week. Uh, So I have a part three, so, you know, be ready for that. Um, Now, it's important to understand that holy and common and clean and unclean overlap in biblical commands. 
and they intersect with each other in ways that have a number of nuances that I can't talk about in the message. Uh, but I want us to begin to struggle with this and reclaim some of the areas we've given over to secularism in our life to a more religious perspective. Now we looked at Acts chapter 15. I'm not going to go there again. You guys know that passage. Several commandments are given to the Gentiles initially as they are coming to faith alongside the Jews. God had limited the diet of Adam and Eve to uh, vegetation, then expanded it with Noah, then curtailed it with Israel as a holy people. So now Gentiles who are coming alongside the holy people to also be a, a people who are holy have some of these requirements placed on them. Not all of them, but some of them. And the ones that we have are related to sexuality, related to things strangled, not killed for the purpose of, of eating, uh, things sacrificed to idols, we talked about that, and then uh, the blood, which goes back even to the uh, Noahic uh, uh, context and covenant. Now I talked about we learn through experience, we are reinforced through experience, and this is why in many ways... God gave Israel narratives and commandments so that in the doing the commandments and telling the stories, they would experience truth and know truth. Not in a propositional way, which is our kind of Greco-Roman framework, but in an experiential way. Uh, and that's really important. It's one of the reasons we do the Holy Days. It's one of the reasons that the, the Lord's Supper is so significant in Christianity. It is in these experiences that truth is both expressed, reinforced, and understood. So, in the Acts passage, we were told uh, that we are to avoid blood, things that have strangled, so things that have died not for the purpose of food, things that are um, given to idols, and therefore we have to talk about that. So, food is not a no-God zone. It is not a secular area. It is an area that we have to address and we have to deal, we have to deal with. And at the present time, it's very well understood that religious Jews, religious Muslims, and certain groups of Christians address this. Uh, but in most cases, free church Christians, Baptists, uh, tend to ignore that, with one exception, and that will be related to alcohol. I'll talk about that later as well. So... What can be eaten? Last week we talked about this. And I said that the Creator has placed some restrictions on us. That blood may not be consumed. It must be poured out and separated. Uh, you wouldn't know that right after I spoke about that, as uh, Rabbi Darman and I went to eat, uh, they undercooked my meat. And I had to do the... Uh, every bite I had to separate and squeeze out the blood and do that to stay consistent. It was, it's the longest time it's taken me to eat in a long time. Uh, but I w it was fresh in my mind as to what that's about. And so that, uh, that epiphany of the knowledge of, of God's commandments were, were reinforced there. Food sacrificed to any so-called God other than the God of Israel in the place where he appoints. And since that's not going on, any food sacrificed to any God in any way is to be avoided. I talked about that. And then that which is strangled. That really means it dies on its own 
torn by beasts. In other words, it's not killed for the purpose of eating. Now, tied to this is the notion that if an animal is suffering in the process of raising and preparing them, that would be under this category as well. I talked about my avoidance of veal under that context. So, having talked about that, I now have to talk about the two problems that we run into whenever this is talked about. One is the problem of legalism and the problem of replacement. So let me deal with replacement first. It'll be easier. Well, when Jesus died, he ended all of the food uh, requirements. Okay? That's what you hear. Now, he said himself, these are red letter words. He said himself, do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah. I have not come to abolish it, to bring it, but to bring it into full operation. And therefore, until heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or tittle shall pass from the Torah until it is all fulfilled in full operation. That's what he said. And those who don't do it and teach others not to do it will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Those who do it and teach others to do it will be great in the kingdom of heaven. That's his words. So this idea that when Jesus died on the cross, the, the food commandments went away is simply not true. Now what about the other issue? The other issue is legalism. Whenever biblical commands are addressed as essential to the life of a believer, the accusation of legalism is raised. So this has to be addressed. So let's address it quickly. Salvation is by grace through faith. Not of works. But that's not the whole story. So I want you to look at that verse in its context because that's the verse that we get shoved down our throat. Uh, to coin a phrase, right? So Ephesians chapter 2. always ask somebody when they quote that to me, oh, you guys are doing all that Jewish stuff. Oh, you mean the biblical stuff? Well, you know, uh, uh, salvation is by grace through faith. And, and, what's the rest of the verse? And they just look at me with that deer in a headlight look. So, chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, it's very clear that salvation is by grace through faith 
and is an avenue by which God brings us into relationship with himself and with Israel and with his commandments so that we will walk in those good works which he has previously ordained that we would walk in them. The question is which ones, that's debatable, but, th- but there is no debate that we are called of God by grace through faith to enter into relationship with him and with Israel to walk in good works. And those good works are what the commandments are about. So, this is not about legalism. This is about struggling with understanding the teaching and the commandments of God. So, I want to talk about this from a New Testament text perspective. And I gave you those verses last week. I want us to look at them. I am amazed how much Paul addresses this issue if at the cross it all went away. There's not much you have to say. You simply say, it's done. But it isn't done. So I want us to look at some passages. The first one is Romans chapter 14. These are passages that I have read and struggled with uh, all of my Christian experience from various perspectives as I learn more and realize that I have pulled things out of context and applied them to things that they're not really talking about. So... In Romans chapter 12, we are told to give ourselves to God in the body of the Messiah. In chapter 13, we're told to obey uh, those in authority. Uh, uh, And then uh, we are to love people. And then in chapter 14, uh, Paul gives us this instruction. Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, None of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we live or die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died, lives again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to me. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, you can read all of this carefully and you'll get 
the message pretty clear. My relationship to the Lord is a thing that I am to focus on. Not your relationship to the Lord. What I do and don't do, I must do and not do with a clear conscience before the Lord that I am doing the best I understand. Now, there are things that I don't do now that I used to do because I understand the Lord better. And there are things that I, well, how did I say that? That I, that I do now that I didn't do because I understand the Lord better, right? Both, both end, right? As you grow in grace and in knowledge, as you reach a level of maturity and you study to show yourself approved and you go through the experience of obeying the commandments, you begin to realize how those commandments uh, manifest in your life. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's got their own relationship with God and it doesn't matter what they do. What I'm saying is that my focus is not to be on your relationship to the Lord. So, he says, accept one another. We are to accept one another in the beloved. I am to accept that you are a child of God. You are to accept that I am a child of God and that that relationship is between us and God. I watch this with parents a lot of times. Mom or dad wants the kids to have the same relationship that they have with the kids with the other spouse. Okay? That's not possible and not smart. Because the relationship between a child and one parent is going to be different than that child and another parent. Otherwise, you don't need two parents. Those relationships are different. Now, they're different based on role, they're different based on personality, they're all kinds of things. But the idea of one size fits all in these relationships is ridiculous. So, my father and me are struggling through this. Your father and you are struggling through this. Therefore, since we have the same father, we are brother and sister. But we don't have the same rules and understanding of those rules. And you know that if you grew up with siblings. You had some siblings that the parents just rode them like crazy. You may have been one of those. And you had other siblings that they just had to give a a look of concern and the kid straighten up. Right? Uh, Those relationships are different. And Paul says, why are you judging your brother? You're going to stand before God. This is about you and God. And therefore, you need to be fully convinced in your own mind that what you're doing is the best obedience that you can give to your Heavenly Father. And we do that by training ourselves at Lent and during the month of Elul uh, in trying to fix those things. So he says, this is not about judging each other. Okay. So if you go... I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing this? You're wrong. Even if you're right, you're wrong. Okay? So, that's the first point. Now, he then moves on from there in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. 
I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. Now Paul understands that clean and unclean is not about the object. It's not about its inherent nature. It's about the meaning that God is placing on the context for the purpose of our growth. So he's not getting superstitious and, oh, there, that's it. So I just moved that. Um, but he says, to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now that's a principle. If I'm not sure about something, I need to treat it as unclean. Does that make it unclean? No, it's unclean for me. Remember Rabbi Stewart yesterday saying to Israel, that God said to Israel, to you it is unclean. Not that it's unclean. To you it's unclean, right? So there are things that you're not sure of. You think they might be unclean. You do not violate your conscience. Because if you violate your conscience, even if your conscience is wrong, you will disrupt your conscience so that when it's right, you still won't follow it. You don't want to sear your conscience. So you're better off to limp along doing things that you shouldn't do, that it's okay for you to do, because you have a conviction about them, but it's between you and God. It's not something you put on your brother. But he says, it is because of food, your, but if because of, your bro, uh, because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy him with food for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable. In other words, you're clean to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil to the man who eats and gives offense. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything which causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned already if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not of faith is sin. Now I want you to catch this. I'm not to judge you. I'm to struggle with this for myself. I'm to, if in doubt, I'm to avoid it. Not make you avoid it. I'm to avoid it. And then I've got to be careful that I've now got knowledge and I know that something is okay. And somebody else's conscience is bothered. And I go, that's all right. Because I will destroy their conscience. So I have to be clear in my own conscience. But I can't let my arrogance of knowledge puff me up and violate the, the care of my brother who might stumble. Now be careful about stumbling. Stumbling does not mean that the person is bothered or doesn't like it. They have an emotional reaction. Stumbling means that it causes a crisis in their faith. Sometimes somebody's judgmental, you just got to tell them, quit being judgmental. But a person who's really struggling, you should help. Now we all do this. Again, we do it in the secular world. 
Almost everybody I know, if they are with somebody who's an alcoholic and they drink, they will refuse to drink in the presence of that person for their sake. But they won't do it spiritually because I'm, I'm aware of what I can do, right? That's arrogance. And so we're, that's not love. Love is self-giving for the benefit of another. See what Paul's talking about? So now I want you to look at this in uh, another uh, section of Scripture. And again, I don't have time to cover it all. Uh, there's actually three more chapters where Paul talks about this. They're in 1 Corinthians. We'll begin at verse 8. We'll just look at a few of the verses. And I'm going to skip verse chapter 9 altogether, which bothers me greatly. Uh, but I've got to get through this. Or this will be a part 8 uh, series. In chapter 8, picking up on this same theme about addressing what I know to be okay versus what I'm struggling with versus what you're struggling with, okay? This is, again, why we have to be in community so that we know what each other is struggling with. He says, now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now, we know this. This is one of the Acts 15 passages, right? One of the categories. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies. See the principle? Well, I know, I know the truth. And the truth has set me free. All right. But don't stumble your brother. Because you're to love one another. Right? So he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Boy. The longer I live, the more I realize how much I don't know. And a lot of the things that I used to know really well, I now know I was wrong. So a little humility here would go a long way. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Wow. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And that there is no God but one. We know that, right? That's our... It's our doctrine. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, or indeed as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul says, we know that. But, however, not all men have this knowledge. Some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Remember the weak brother? This is the weak thing. The weak thing is the person who is responding to a knowledge and emotion based on their own experience that's not quite in line with the scriptures. We all have points of weakness. So he says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor are we the better if we eat it. Because it's not about the food, it's about the meaning and the theology and the opportunity to practice love. Okay? Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
if somebody sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple? Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? He's trying to copy you. After all, you're the spiritual one, right? And through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. In other words, he now is He's going to have guilt feelings. He's going to have recrimination. He's going to have struggles. And you've made it worse because you're in there going, I don't care if they sacrifice something to that idol and I'm eating the food. I don't care about that. I know that that's a piece of plaster. But the other person is going, that's to a God. So that food is to the God. Why is he doing that, right? This is why I said, if, if it's out there in public, I avoid it. Because I don't know who else is out there among my brothers. So, Paul gives us a standard of our liberty. He says, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when he is weak, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. He means sacrificed idols. So that I will not cause my brother to sin. It is much more important that we watch each other's weak conscience than that we, uh, that we live in our liberty. Now again, we're not talking about letting a person who's a reactionary, judgmental jerk claim a stumbling block. I had this guy once. He said, he had something about something I was doing. I can't even remember what it was. I, I said, I, I don't see what you're talking about. He says, well, you're stumbling me. I said, really? Yeah, so you have to stop it. I said, I'm prepared to stop it. I just need to know something. You're going to give up your faith in Jesus because I'm doing this? You think that, that God's grace is not sufficient in this context? That's really, No, I'm not saying that. I just It bothers me. I said, then shut up. Because you're being judgmental, and that's a much greater sin. You're being a spoiled brat, not a weaker brother. There's a difference, and we have to be careful of that. On the other hand, if somebody's really struggling, how dare we not come alongside them and walk at their pace so that they can, uh, they can grow in grace and in knowledge? So Paul makes the standard of our liberty, liberty the knowledge of our weaker brother. Uh, There are those who associate the material item with the demon gods and the false gods. And we must be aware of potentially stumbling that brother so that he ends up violating his conscience. So this is not about allowing superstition to rule. But where the actual struggle is present, love defers to the brother's conscience and the restriction. So I eat kosher at the level of the most observant Jew that I am with. There are some Jews that that means we only eat in kosher restaurants. Trevor and I have done it. We only eat in kosher restaurants. We only eat whatever's there. Now, I know some other Jews who don't do that. They're not bothered by it. And I'm not going to judge them in that framework. It's not. I'm living within my own statement towards God. And I am accommodating my brother in his convictions and his weakness. Those are the principles that I use in this context. Jews are not weaker brothers. They have a greater restriction which I am going to honor. 
Uh, and this is related to 1 Corinthians 9, which I don't have time, but this is the context, chapter 8, 9, and 10, where Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might by all means win some of them. He means win and encourage them. In other words, to those who are without the law, I'm without the law, but not without law to God. He still keeps his own conviction, right? To those who are Jews, I will be as a fellow Jew. And to those who are under the law, have a stricter burden than him, he's going to follow that. That's what he means by all things to all men. He's trying to not give offense to any in that context. Which brings us then to our last uh, text, which is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And again, I don't have time to go into all of it, but we'll pick it up at verse uh, 25. He's talking about this same issue of idolatry and problems and people being weak. And when he gets to verse 25... He says, well, let me do verse 20, 23 because I think we need to be careful. He's already said you can't eat of the Lord's table and the table of demons. This is the whole issue. Yeah, but we know there's not a demon. It's not the issue. It's the other person's. Now watch what he says. Verse uh, 23. All things are lawful. Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Why? What they would do if there were leftovers of the meat after they sacrificed it, the idol, they did some of that. The temples would simply put it into the meat markets. And so if you went into a meat market, you didn't know where that came from. And you could take some meat that was sacrificed to Diana or Zeus. Paul says, don't ask. Don't tell. Okay? If you're going in there and it's just being sold as meat, then eat it. Okay? Then he says, for all the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And if one of the unbelievers invite you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Don't ask questions about your conscience. He does, he's not burdened with your conscience. He's an unbeliever. Right? But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, then you do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake, Now that we know this is sacrifice to idols, there's the sacrifice in front of the restaurant I talked about. Now that it's out there, I follow my conscience and I watch out for the conscience of others and the one who brought it up. Okay? 29. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. Then he says, yeah, but why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Well, the answer is, you eat or drink whatever you do, you're to be doing for the glory of God, not your liberty. So give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the Christians, the church of God. 
Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Now, I want you to know, when I first read this verse years and years ago, I thought, you got to be kidding. Because my view of Paul was Paul was an in-your-face, iconoclast kind of, uh, you know, eating a ham sandwich on Passover and doing all this kind of stuff to kind of, that was, I was, that was my thinking. That's what I was taught. Then I started looking at Paul through the Torah lens and realized that Paul's navigating how to be appropriate in each of these cases without violating his own commitment to God, his own place as a Jew and as a Pharisee, which he still remains all through the book of Acts. And I realized he's not trying to give offense. But dang, Paul was in trouble all the time. Because if you live righteously, you're going to suffer persecution. But if you go with the flow with what everybody's saying is right and wrong, you're not going to be persecuted. So Paul says we're not to give offense to the Jews, we're not to give offense to the Greeks, the unbelievers, and we're not to give offense to, the, to our fellow believers. We have to walk with them in love. So... Eat what is sold or offered and don't ask its source. But if it is known or stated, then you are to abstain for the sake of the weaker brother and for the unbeliever's conscience uh, who believes that their God exists. So we must maintain a separation from all idolatry because we are servants of the true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. We don't go looking for it, but when it is stated, we make, we make our adjustment. Those are the principles that I am currently operating in in that context. Now, this experience with food expands also to our sexuality and the holy days, uh, which gives us training for our senses to know good and evil, holy and common and clean and unclean, which allows us to address the bigger issue. The bigger issue. And I just want to introduce the bigger issue today so that I can talk about it next time. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6. To a group who understands this by use. Because he's already instructed them in 1 Corinthians. He now says this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there with the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. That, that's not about food. 
It's about a greater understanding of clean and unclean, of holy and common, and of righteousness and evil. That God wants us as maturing children of God to do so that the family resemblance will be seen. When they see us, they will see a manifestation of our God. You've all seen kids where you go, man, that's a mini-me of their dad. That's a mini-me of their mom, right? We're supposed to be mini-me's of God with Jesus as our elder brother showing us that direction. So that people can't... Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We need to be able to say, based on our lifestyle, if you've seen me, you've seen the Lord. And if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. The family resemblance is in our behavior and in our understanding. Not for arrogance sake, but that the grace of God may come to others as we become light and salt in that world. I'm going to address that next time, but I'm out of time. Let's pray.